Welcome to the Born to Be a Badass podcast, the show about the intersection of women's empowerment, embodiment, and self-defense, and what women need to know and do to enhance their physical, mental, and emotional safety. Here's your host, fourth-degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Jalakor-Rude. Welcome to the Born to Be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Jolikert-Rude, and today I have got a gangbuster interview for you. (laughs) (laughs) You are going to just have to hold on to your seats because this is an amazing woman that you get to hear from, and I'll let you in on a little secret when we get to the end of the show. Melissa Salt is a women's self-defense pioneer a Black Belt Hall of Fame recipient, former trauma psychotherapist, and the creator of Fierce and Female Self-Defense. A forerunner in full-force padded assailant scenario training, her approach is both practical and transformational. She has taught thousands of women how to safeguard their boundaries, protect themselves from danger, and resist attack while reconnecting women with deep-seated primal and emotional powers to live safer, bolder, fuller lives, and to reverse female fear. She's an outspoken advocate for self-defense as physical feminism. Melissa has been featured in national and international media, and has also taught in Europe, India, Nepal, and Kenya. She provides customized online training and corporate consulting, and is at work on a manifesto for women. Welcome to the show, Melissa. Thank you. That was awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Listening to it. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. You are such a trailblazer in this Mm -hmm. field that Mm -hmm. I am so honored that you are willing to be Mm -hmm. on the show. And I just, I'm going to bite my tongue and not share our secret till we get towards the end of the show, but I'm super excited about that too. So (laughs) thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I mean, I chuckled and I, I just love your badassery. <laughs> and um, you're right, you know, we need badass women in the world. And self-defense training is a viable, important piece of the path for becoming a badass and fighting to defend ourselves, our lives, each other, and save the world. <laughs> so yeah. that's pretty badass, yeah. It, it is indeed, and you are an incredible role model in multiple ways. So super excited to get to ask you lots of questions and hear some of your stories. Well, before we dive into the nitty-gritty stuff, I usually ask some warm-up questions just to kind of get us in the flow. So are you ready for those? Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you were one of the four elements, so earth, oh air, wind, or fire, which would you be? Fire. I mean, that's an easy one for me. I think we all have a little bit of, you know, all the elements in us, but I think we also tend to have more of one than the other. So as you know, a lot of my philosophy is about finding your fears. And the other piece of that is turning fear into fire. So fire is definitely my element. And yeah, I'm fire. Just curious to know, what is your astrological sign? Water sign. I'm Cancer. And I also have, you know, that element in me. I particularly, the sort of lack of better words, I, I'm very maternal. 
and you know I have strong empathy and caring. So please understand that you know while I talk about some intense and gritty stuff here and ferocities and all that good stuff that we need, I'm also the girl that you know escorts the bugs out of the house in my hand and puts them in crunchy, good dirt with water. So you know I it, we, we can be all of the above. So I'm a Cancer with a Scorpio rising, and I think the Scorpio rising and that kind of intensity if one believes in astrology, also informs my headspace. Oh, cool. That is neat. Well, I'll just let you know right now, I'm a Leo with Leo rising. Oh, oh, oh. No wonder we love each other. <laughs> well, funny thing, my husband is also Leo with Leo rising. So, Boy. Yeah. Well, so. we got a lot of stuff going on, <laughs> a lot of brilliance and sunshine and fire. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Well, I had a feeling that Fire was the element that you would be drawn to just based on the things that I've read and seen of you. So I was not surprised, but I, I love hearing, you know, why and how that kind of informs your life. That's really neat. Well, and may I say one more thing about that, the fire thing, you know, I don't want to take up too much time here in this intro, but I often tell people that my work, my words and my work are born out of very two deep feelings, love and fury. And here's the thing, when you rub the matchsticks of love and fury together for years, as I have, sparks are ignited and a fire emerges. And it's this fire that really, you know, informs my work. So fire is an important principle. It's not the only principle, but it is an important principle. I think it's really important for women in terms of our, you know, fighting back and rising up and all that stuff. So, yeah, fire. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, what's one place in the world that you've never been to but would like to go? Boy, that's a great question. I would say Africa. Yeah, I, I've been to Kenya, but there's so much more to explore there. It's an amazing continent full of beautiful countries and powerful forces and amazing, extraordinary people and women. So I would say Africa. Cool. I would love to go there, too. That is on my bucket list to go cool. do like a photo safari or something like that where you can uh, sleep outside, you know, and mm-hmm. um, but not be completely exposed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'm too old for that. So that sounds good. <laughs> Take me with you. Yeah. I like the things where, you know, sort of all the services and support is provided for you. And your right. only job is just to really take it in and enjoy it. That's lovely. Mm-hmm. Perfect. What's your favorite self-care practice? Mm. The first thing that popped into my head was eating, but I'm not sure that's always (laughs) (laughs) self-care. You know, reading. I'm a big reader. I have a voracious appetite for books. And while that might not sound, you know, like yoga or something, and I I have some um, physical and medical issues that I'm dealing with right now, so there's a lot of things I can't do. I mean, ordinarily, a lot of my self-care would be you know, physical movements and practices of that sort. But right now it's reading. It just, I like the reflective state it puts me into. And I find a lot of comfort in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can understand that. One of the great gifts of diving into a book is you can kind of leave your own circumstances behind. True enough, yeah. And I also do a lot of nonfiction reading Mm -hmm. because I just, I love to learn. Yeah, that's great. Reading is a good thing to do. Mm Mm-hmm. What advice would you give young women in their 20s today that you wish you'd had when you were that age? 
Wow, that's a show in in and of itself. In my 20s, I mean, I would say my advice to young women, even younger than that, and including that, is to give yourself permission and learn how to speak up when something feels wrong. Um, that has great self-protective connotations, obviously, in terms of, you know, setting boundaries and alerting to danger. And it just speaking up. I mean, I grew up in an era where we silenced ourselves, where we didn't speak up, and there were some grave consequences as a result of that. So my best advice to young women is, well, I'd say it's twofold. A, speak up and take action when something doesn't feel right. And B, go for it. Go after your dreams. Free yourself from fears that may inhibit you and do what you love. Oh, that's great advice. That's awesome. It's very in line with what I hope my daughters, who are both in their 20s right now, have mm-hmm. picked up from me. And, and I'm sad to say, like, I wasn't really super conscious of mm-hmm. specific lessons I wanted them to get. But I hope mm-hmm. that those are some of the things that they picked up just by being raised by me. <laughs> I'm sure they have. I mean, and you know, girl, kid, young women, listen to me. Today, I'm an old fart, so the, uh, listeners, um, I'm dating myself, so I might as well just say I'm 65. <laughs> and it was very different growing up in our my day, I should say. You know, and women have great freedoms now. And uh, however, there's still pieces of our socialization as females, in my observation and experience, that sometimes can become a hindrance. And there are things that we need to overcome. And that's where I'm coming from when I say, don't silence yourself. Don't allow yourself to be silenced. And figure out where your passions lie and follow them and give yourself permission and the support and the resources to do what you love. Because in the end, That's all we have is what we love. Well, that's interesting that you encapsulate it like that, because that basically, to me, sounds like the path that you have followed in your life. And I would really like Mm -hmm. to dig into Mm -hmm. how you discovered what your thing was, um, Mm -hmm. you know, how how you ended up in this world of self-defense. So Mm -hmm. I know that you had an experience when you were very young Mm -hmm. that... I think I read an article where you described it as being mm-hmm. an initiation into a world where fear was a natural part of life. So yep. can, you, mm-hmm. can you kind of start there and describe mm-hmm. what your journey has been? Yes, and thank you. You know, I think it's hard because there's so many pieces, but when we look back on our lives and we trace, you know, the origins of how we got to where we are, whatever our thing is, there are certain incidents and stories, and I think pivotal moments, seminal moments or experiences that really even if we don't know it at the time, like I didn't know this at the time, but it would become, you know, essential to the unfolding and unpacking of who I would become. So the story is like this, you know, there's a wonderful writer, Graham Greene, and he once said this quote that I really latched onto that there's always this moment in childhood when the door opens and lets the future in. Wow. So I was seven. It was like 1962, maybe 63. And it was a cold, brisk winter's day, and the snow covered the earth. It was that kind of snow that was crunchy when you kind of, you know, walked about. But the sun was shining. So me and my friend Jen, my best friend Jen, decided to take a little walk. 
and we walked to this little wooded area near my house. Now, in those days, you know, kids walked around a lot more than they do now mm -hmm. <laughs> without all the protection. So we walked to this little wooded area, creek around through, and we got to the place where we like to hang. Um, two boys approached, and I didn't think anything of it at the time because a lot of kids hung out there. So these two boys approached. Maybe they were 9 or 10. They were older. And we started chatting, friendly talk. We talked about the school principal and like kind of stuff. And then suddenly, and I, these are very visceral memories, suddenly the air froze. And it wasn't the cold. It was like time stood still. And what happened was they flanked us. They went on either side. And I knew we were in trouble. Now, I'd never had anything happen before, but I knew in that moment we were in trouble. One of the boys pulled out a switchblade, silver and sort of swished it about, and we were terrified. The other boy pulled out a very boxy, what, in, in those days, they were these big silver boxy lighters. And the boy with the switchblade said, I'm going to cut you up. And I even remember, and this goes to how conditioned we are, the socialization. In that moment when my survival was maybe at stake, I actually had the thought, the little girl, good girl thought, oh, look, they're both silver. It's a set. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So, OK. So they pull us apart. And the smaller of the two boys grabs me and pulls us apart. And he's the boy with the lighter. And the taller boy took Jen. And the boy with the lighter flick whoosh. He set it to the highest possible flame. I, in my memory, it was like two inches. I had long, dirty blonde hair. And he grabs me with one hand and I can't move. And he says, I'm going to set you on fire. I'm going to set your hair on fire. And he looked at me with this really mean look in his face. And he did. He started to, I should say. Few, you know, he grabbed some strands of my hair and they singed and they burned and I smelled them and my scalp burned. And I'm pleading with him, stop, you know, just pleading with him. No, let me go. Don't do this. Stop, please. And I can't get away. I can't escape his grab. And every time I pleaded with him and blew out the flame, flick whoosh. He turned it up again. And there was this, I looked at his face and he had this kind of like cruel look in his eyes. It was this mean game of cat and mouse. And I just begged him and pleaded him to let me go and he wouldn't. And I desperately wanted to be home. I remember this feeling of I just need to see mom and dad. I want to get home because I was afraid I was going to die right then and there. And I think that was the thought that gave me the power to yank myself free finally. And I scramble over to a clearing, you know, and, you know, with this sort of singed hair. And I watch, I see my friend Jen getting roughed up and punched in this little icy stream. Now, she was a tomboy, and so she was pretty good, you know, wrestling with her brothers and holding her ground. But I'm watching her, and I'm frozen in fear, just terrified. I remember feeling like a marble statue. You know, the petrification is, excuse me, is really what I felt. Mm -hmm. I couldn't do anything. I just stood there and I watched her and I felt terrible. And I, and, and I watched her pom-pom on her long stocking hat go up and down as she kind of wrestled with this kid. And then I watched it float away in this icy stream. Who knows why? They decided they'd had enough. They'd had their way with us, if you will. I'm thinking it's like, you know, a couple of wild critters who'd had their fill and they say, let's go. I remember that. And they take off. And Jen and I, you know, see each other. And we run to each other and I'm crying and, you know, and we're like, let's get out of here. And there was this little opening in the fence. So we go out the opening and there's one long street to my house. And I was a chubby kid. I later dubbed myself the little meatball who could. <laughs> and uh, But that night I remember feeling my 
legs just hit the ground as hard as as we ran home. So we get home, and of course, there's quite a tumult and uproar, and you know, her mom gets called and, and all of that stuff. And then the important part of this story, in terms of my reflections upon it, is that later that night, I'm sitting in a tub. You know, it, we had this Mr. Bubble. I don't know if they still have it. And they're like <laughs> big, frothy pink bubbles. And I'm sitting in a Mr. Bubble tub, and I remember distinctly wanting to wash the day away, just wash it away. And I'm sitting there, and as you said, I realized, I didn't have the words for it, but I knew I'd been initiated, that I'd crossed some threshold. And in my head, because I was a concrete kid, I saw it as like like a welcome mat, only it was an unwelcome mat. And I, in my mind, it said, welcome to fear. And I just knew that this was going to be part of the female landscape, a natural part, a, a given, like... Eventually, we'd have, you know, I'd have breasts and menses, and so too there would be fear. And first it would be of boys, and then it would be of men. Of course, that would not prove wrong. And I would, you know, later have a lot more experiences with fear and terror. So that was this initiation, and I had two co-emerging thoughts. I remember that so clearly. And one of them was a question. It was like, why did these boys feel like they had the right to do this to us? Mm-hmm. We didn't hurt them. We didn't do anything. Why did they do this? And moreover, why did they feel they had the right to terrorize and hurt us? Now, that remains the ongoing question. Concurrent with that thought, that you know, question is, why didn't I steal his fire? Why didn't I just snatch that lighter from that boy? He was a scrawny kid. Why didn't I take that fire and punch him in the gut and save myself and Jen and her stocking hat? Why can't girls do that? So, and that was the thought that put a big grin on my face. (laughs) And literally, I remember it so well in that moment. It was like, that was the thought, that revisioning, that reimagining in my little girl's mind that really hit home. And I think I tucked that thought away inside of myself. You know, this thing of why didn't I steal his fire and why can't this girls do that? I don't know why boys do what they do, but why can't I? Why can't I have done that? So really that thought <laughs> was stowed away. That was sort of my first lesson with fear, if you will. And, and you know, this thing I have about fire, stealing fire. Yeah. So that happened. And I didn't really think much of it, but I would, years later, in hindsight, I would come to realize how that was my original flame, if you will. Yeah, it <laughs> and, was like and, a seed got it was planted seed. right there. Absolutely. That seed got planted and that vision got planted. And the truth of that would resonate, you know, still to this day, really. So that all happened. That was my first initiation. I think we all have initiations and rites of passage. Learning self-defense is a rite of passage, but fear was my first initiations. So if I may, may I tell you another story? Yeah, yeah, I love your stories. So, I mean, we all have them. And, you know, my hope in telling these stories is that something about it connects to those listening, you know. So here's my second story. Ten years or so later, I have this thing about ten years apart, maybe 11 years. I'm a hippie traveler. It was the most incredible experience in years of my life. I was uh, 19. I dropped out of school and I decided I'm going to go, you know, travel the world. Poor third class student rate with whatever few bucks I had. So I go off and I live in Israel at first and I'm living on a kibbutz, which for those who don't know was a kind of a, was a big social experiment of its day. It was a communal living style with a lot of people together and child rearing together. And it was farming 
and I worked in the uh, banana fields. There were a lot of people, volunteers, and we'd come and we'd kind of help out. Now, this was right after one of the wars. It was in, it was the, the Yom Kippur War, and there was a lot of activity still in the northern area of Israel where I was living. So I go off to live in Israel, and it was phenomenal. And days after I get there, literally, um, uh, this one fellow, Shuki, he, he thrust the Kalachnikov into my hands, and he says, you're ready. Here you are. This is how you use it. Oh my. Yeah, so I learned, you know, okay, I'm here, and, you know, it, I mean, it was all about survival. I mean, survival is really the ultimate transformer, which I can get into more. So I, this was new to me, you know. I mean, I was a sort of a tough girl growing up, and I had some, I had an abusive early boyfriend, and I, I kind of lived on some of the wrong side of the track, so I wasn't like, you know, a perfect girl, you know, but still this was news to me. You know, I was basically grew up in suburbia and here I am and there's that. And then there's the bomb shelters and then there's the sound of, you know, fighter jets whizzing overhead. And I get my first machete, which I'm going to use in the banana fields because you have to cut a lot of dead leaves and so on and so forth. You know, and at first these things were like so unfamiliar, right? And horrifying in a lot of ways. But that's the thing about survival is that Quickly thereafter, these sounds, these sensations, you know, the feeling of this machete slapping against my thigh in a cracked leather sheath were suddenly completely familiar to me, normalized. And somewhere in my, you know, nervous system, it just sat alongside the suburban tinkly sound of Mr. Softy's ice cream truck. I mean, really, survival mm-hmm. is amazing that way. So I'm there, and it's an extraordinary Thing. But this is where I'm first encountering encounter sexual assault. My kibbutz father, you're assigned a sort of adoptive family, if you will, tried to rape me. Um, he invites me for tea one day, chit-chat. I didn't realize his wife wasn't there. We're having, you know, sitting on the couch. All of a sudden comes the hand on my leg and the touching, and I'm like, you know, pushing him away and doing all the things I, could, I only knew at that point, which wasn't a whole lot. And I'm like, I'm going now. And I get up and I walk to the door quickly, and he gets there. He's a big strapping guy, a lot of hair. I remember a lot of hair. And he slams me against the wall, boom, and my head hits the wall. And he's basically pinning me there and starting to try to undress me and, you know, really attempting to forcibly rape me. It's clear that's his goal. And I had no idea what to do. And this is important because, you know, so many women don't know what to do, yet we figure something out. And what I ended up doing would later become some combative principles, who knew? And I'm torquing my waist and I'm torquing my hips because he's like engulfed me and, you know, he's grabbing me. My hips are still free, so I'm like twisting and torquing and scratching at his face and kicking at his shins and and yelling at him and doing everything I can. And I break free. And I run to uh, what was my good kibbutz brother, different family, and I tell him what happened. And so that happened. That was another initiation. And it silenced me. I never said a word, uh, which, you know, I wish I hadn't done. But I felt it was a closed community, and I was scared to, and I didn't want to rock the boat and all these kind of things. Mm-hmm. So I didn't say anything. And silencing is a powerful force. So that was my another initiation. And to move this story along, I had some other, a lot of hands-on, grabby, touchy-feely kind of stuff started happening. So at that point, I'm with a, a guy, a partner, and we decide to go traipsing around Central and South Asia for a couple of years. And I hear a little bit of a noise in the background. We fly off to Turkey 
And we spend the next two years, I, I spend the next couple of years as part of the great hippie caravan, which was extraordinary and it changed my life. And it was just mind blowing in so many ways. This is the mid 70s, right? So there's mm-hmm. no internet, there's no CNN or cable news or anything. So I really didn't know what I was getting into. So we're traveling around this very patriarchal part of the world, third class student rate. <laughs> And I had a lot more, I was grabbed, I was groped, not all the time, but enough of the time that it really took a huge toll on me. And my partner, my, you know, guy, he was all expansive. He was joyful. He was reveling this universal brotherhood. And for me, there was always this pervasive kind of sense of fear and restriction and limitation. And more than my experiences, and, and I'll get to, uh, there were a couple of very scary attempted rapes. But I also witnessed for the first time in my life the inequities of being born female and, you know, the oppressive powers of very patriarchal thinking and the restrictions of this place on women. I mean, this was before we saw anything on TV. I mean, mm-hmm. and here were women in, you know, full burkas. And I mean, it was just mind blowing. You can imagine I'm 18, 19. You know, I left home. It was the beginning of the women's, you know, revolution and the sexual revolution and all these things. And I'm plunked into this part of the world that I did not even know existed, to be honest. Mm-hmm. So um, the combination of me being grabbed and groped and just this kind of hands-on, people, men feeling the right to take, and this goes to the heart of sexual assault is, you know, the taking without consent. And I, I want to be very clear, this isn't against any faith or anything like that, because we have that here in the U.S. too. In our close patriarchal, you know, societies, be it in, in, in the church or any kind of communities. Um, so that goes on over the world. But this is where I had my awakening and it happened to me, if you will. And then, so there were a few violent attempted rapes. And there was, I was actually stoned with rocks once in, in Pakistan. I was out, yeah, I was out walking a friend's, um, St. Bernard, a large dog. And I didn't realize that they have a thing about fighting dogs over there. And I think that's what they maybe thought it was. But in any event, so I'm walking this dog thinking, surely I'm safe with this animal. And um, it wasn't, by walking alone out with this dog was not seen as, I guess, right. And um, pretty soon a crowd of men mushroom around and start picking up, I don't want to say big rocks, but pelting us with, you know, stones. And, uh, you know, I broke free from that, but, you know, bruised and... It was just, you know, it was a rude awakening in that sense. And again, it was an extraordinary experience in so many ways, uh, life-changing and deepening in a, in a spiritual sense. But it was very different for me and for my male partner. Uh, once I was violently um, attacked in broad daylight in a big city, um, in a, you know, upscale area, a guy ran up and grabbed my crotch from behind, um, just right, just like that. And um, I spun around and I spit in his face. <laughs> I learned at this trip that I was a scrappy bitch, if mm-hmm. I may say that. And, yeah. and I spit. It's not a technique I can hardly recommend unless you know how to follow it up immediately and you understand what's going to happen when you do that, which I didn't. So he goes to choke me out, of course, and, you know, throttling me. And we end up on the ground and this vicious fight ensues and we're pummeling each other. And I get ripped off this man. And I felt victorious because I'd struck back and, you know, I got in my licks and my blows and I was enraged. It was on this trip that I discovered the power of rage used effectively. It was the beginning. Again, like you perfectly said, it planted a seed because it was on this trip 
um, that I would uncover what I would later call the powerhouse emotions of real fear, anger or fury or rage, whatever label we want to put on it, righteously so. And also just an enormous sense of grief and sadness about the fact that there are these inequities in the world. And so these emotions really started to come into play. And I would later, years later, as you know, through the model mugging program, scenario training, and then my own find your fears kind of training, I really teach women how to and why to access these very deep emotions and use them effectively in self-defense and weaponize these emotions as needed. So this was where I think that seed, that light bulb kind of went off without fully understanding how it was going to play out. So that was, you know, just an extraordinary journey. And what happened at the end, and this is my big colorful story, when I bust this guy's hand. So I'm on this train. It's very densely packed. And it's hard to explain explain what that means from that point of view. I mean, I'm talking, it was chock full of people. You know, like I said, it was hot, no air conditioning, third class student rate, a lot of men and some women and donkeys and chickens and goats and you name it you know, packed into a train like little dots in a picture, tightly packed. And often I was one of the only females aboard. So I'm on this train and at night, um, you know, there were bandits and thieves. Like I said, you know, I mean, we were traveling in a, in, in a pretty funky kind of way, you know, low budget would have been an upgrade. Let me put it at that. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah. So, you know, and my heart just went out to, you know, women who just, I had very little rights, and that's changing over there, and I love that part of the world and have since gone back. But at the time, it was bad, really bad for most women, not all, but most. So I'm on this train, and at night, I would literally with rope tie myself down. So it was an overnight train, and that was not like a plush, cushy train car. It was like wooden planks, planks of wood attached to a wall. It was in India, my mm -hmm. beloved India, which I've been to back many times, and I absolutely love it. And I, you know, feel like I just want to keep giving back there because I really learned a lot about a lot of these seeds of self-defense happen there. So I'm on this wooden board, and I'm tying myself and my one tattered knapsack down so nobody steals it. And I, there was this guy, and first we were sitting, and I'm with a man the whole time, mind you, right? Right. I never went out alone. I was always fully dressed from head to toe. So, and this guy, and he's trying to play footsie with me and do that kind of thing, you know, and I'm like pushing him away and I'm saying no, and I'm praying to God for an unsightly nosebleed and whatever I can do, right? No, it didn't work. So, and he kept, and we just wouldn't take no for an answer. Now this becomes, mark these words, won't take no for an answer, mm -hmm. bad, bad sign. So I knew it was coming. You know, at some point you start to be able to sniff out danger, even if you can't see it. And so I'm lying down at night and the lights go out and I'm on this wooden plank and he's on the plank below me and my partner is like across on the wooden plank <laughs> and I'm just waiting because I know his hand's going to come up real soon. I just know it. So I'm lying on this plank and all of a sudden I see a hand and, and, and this is really cool. So I'm on this train, right? And it's the poor people's trained and there were a lot of these lovely men you know poor people hunched sitting on their haunches rather mm -hmm. on the side they don't even have a seat they're just sitting there on their haunches and i'm catching their attention because here i am this kind of like scrappy you know travel hippie girl and i'm like hey guys 
I need some allies. Soliciting allies is an important principle in self-defense. So I'm like, okay, I'm catching their eye. So, and this guy who was about to attack me was of a higher class, indicated by certain threads and that he was wearing around his neck and so on. Why he was on that train, I have no idea. So he's, I hear, I see his hand, and I'm catching the attention of the guys, and I pull myself back because I'm like, I'm not having it. I am not having it. I am pissed. I am pissed for all women. I am tired of men's hands feeling they have the right to take and to, without consent, and, you know, hands invisibly inked and plastered over women's bodies, like DNA at the scene of a crime. If only everybody could see them. And I'm really angry, and I'm done. I'm not having it. So I see his hand, and I pull myself back because I want his hand to reach closer, to come up closer, to bend that wrist over the wooden plank. And when I have it in my sights, and I have the attention of the people sitting on the floor, I let loose. And I ball up my hand into a fist. I had no technique, right? I ball up my hand into a fist, and I slam down on his hand really, really hard with all my then thin little girl might. And I bust his hand. I can feel bones crunch under the fury of my fist. They give, they crunch. Break, I'm not really sure. And I reach down below and I grab him by the neck and I throttle him like a rag doll. And I scream and yell in his face, don't you ever do this to any woman again. And I shame him because he's a higher class. Mm -hmm. I shame him in front of the lowest caste folks on this train. Now, that also, shaming has its time and place. It's not always the right thing to do. You have to assess what level of danger and so on. But it has its place. Again, I didn't know it at the time as a sort of method, but that's what I did. And I watched this man deflate like a punctured balloon. Mm-hmm. Literally, just deflate. And I gave him no opening, no room to counterattack. I was just on him with my maddening fury and sort of, you know, counterattack. And another light bulb. And I realized in this moment that I had issued his terror and not the other way around. And I realized it was a very primal epiphany in this moment that my body was a tool and an instrument of power. Now, I'd had fight it back experiences before, but not of this kind of primal level, bone bashing level. And I realized my body is a tool, an instrument of power, and that with this tool, I can be dangerous. Now, part of my teaching and philosophy is I want all women to know they can be dangerous. I want all women, there's no pretty way to say it, this doesn't make us bad people, I want women to know they can put a hurt in our fella. Mm-hmm. A gal too, but it's, you know the truth is, you know, over 90% of attacks against women are against men. So this is a real light bulb moment. My body was not just, my mind was not just an instrument of power. My heart was not just an instrument of power. My body was an instrument of power. And it was ring, 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 like light bulb. So mm. this is where it gets to be really colorful and my story gets more funner. Ah. <laughs> so I had this experience, right? And I don't know whether you believe in cellular memory or not. I'm not sure. Call it cellular memory. Call it the magic of Mother India. But in that moment, I swear, I had this kind of moment where time and space swung its doors, doors wide open. And I felt myself, not saying it's real, but I felt myself kind of swirling back in time, like plunked into a very prehistoric version of myself that I would later come to call Neander Babe. So it was like I, I went way back in time and I felt very undifferentiated from this primal creature, this earlier persona that we all have. 
right? Mm -hmm. It's part of our evolution. Maybe not Neanderthal, maybe it's this or that. Part of our evolution. And this was radicalizing for me because I felt that persona. And it was that part of us that I bring women to in my teaching that predates socialization. I mean, I'm talking going back 40,000 years. I mean, like way back, right? Mm -hmm. Before socialization. And, you know, this part of me that had like thick thunder thighs and sturdy legs and a big wide base. And, you know, that part of us that, again, survival dictated, primordial fires, you know, and you know, one moment we're coddling our young back in that day and being loving moms, and the next minute we're spearing the bears and stomping ugly snakes. I was put back in touch. I reconnected, recollected this very ancient part of myself, and it changed everything in that moment, really, for me. This was, you know, before socialization would have its way with us, before feminine deodorants and plastic bosoms before a litany of don'ts before you know we were constrained by notions of femininity before any of that we were these raw survival oriented primal creatures for whom survival was critical and for whom even and i'm going to use this word now even the capacity for violence and aggressive force was part of our palpable nature. And, you know, I say it that way because it's part of what I have to help women get re in touch with. Yeah. And to be able to help women understand that if when it comes to physical fighting back, which is a last resort, and there's a whole bunch of continuum in between, which we can get to. But if you have to go physical, there's no pretty way to say it. And I disagree with some colleagues who say, oh, you know, fighting back isn't violence. Well, yes, it is. <laughs> and you betcha, and you betcha, and it damn better be. Yeah. Especially if you're smaller against a larger, stronger, pumped up creature, whether that's in Neander Babe days or whether that's Harvey Weinstein or whether that's the nice guy at the pool who turns into the bad guy or an ex or whatever. You, we have to be able to make room in our hearts and in our spirituality and our sense of self for the capacity for aggressive force. Yeah. And it's as much a part of us, like I say, you know, I'm the girl that takes bugs out of the house, prayerfully cupped in hands. It's not an either or. So in that moment, I really got that. You know, I got that part of me. That's what I'm, I'm telling you in I a lot love, of detail. I love that, Melissa, Thank because, you. you know, people have asked me why I picked Born to be a Badass. And right. I mean, I, I don't really feel like I picked it. It picked me. And it's exactly right. because of what you're talking about. I mean, your story is like the perfect illustration of the most yeah. important piece, which is, I mean, we talk about being able to tap into what's already inside right? and giving permission and not allowing violence to just be something that evildoers right. can use, you know, giving, Absolutely. owning it ourselves. And right. that experience that you had is just like an incredibly vivid, tangible illustration of connecting Mm -hmm. to those things and and that's mm -hmm. the whole point of born to be a badass it's like you are and and you are both you know my right. my archetypes my number mm -hmm. one archetype is the lover mm -hmm. you know just like you're saying oh, and and so to be able beautiful, to embrace beautiful. both and value yes. both and use both 
as appropriate is the key. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. And absolutely, I'm like, I'm having goosebumps as you talk about it. And my head is like nodding vociferously up and down. Absolutely. And it is one of the hardest parts, I would say. And, you know, and, and I'll get to that when I talk about the, the early full force training. One of the more challenging parts, I think, for a lot of women, not all women, especially nowadays, you know, women are different. And they, somebody goes on TV, we watch women kick ass and all that stuff. But one of, I mean, for most women who aren't, you know, of that ilk, one of the most challenging things is helping women embrace, own, and and without internal conflict, this the potential for violence within themselves and see its place, you know, on the continuum of womanliness. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that is, you know, that's part of what happened for me. It's like this recollection of this part of ourselves and boom, 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 all these like things kind of fell into place. So... Awesome. So I had this experience and man, man, can I tell you, my body just radiated power for days. And particularly because I had so many, you know, bad experiences. And, you know, like I said, I really got, got that universally there's this thing in, in, in patriarchal, the underlying underbelly of male culture. And that's changing. And I'm not, I don't at all, I'm not a man hater and I don't at all. I mean, to say all men are like this, but there's something there in male socialization that gives them the feeling that they can take, the right to take, the right to judge. And that's just flat out wrong. And so part of the reversal of that and the reversal of, you know, fear is our right to take control and to take power and to take action and embrace this aggressive persona. Mm-hmm. So that all happened to me, right? That was sort of my culminating yay. <laughs> well, that that whole story is an amazing journey from, you know, basically innocence where the world is a safe place and you know mm, nothing bad mm. ever happens, you know, through to well actually no, there are dangers in the world and bad things can happen to I mean when you started to travel you had that experience in Israel where it's like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm going to put you in touch with survival. Mm-hmm. You know, here's your introduction to the fact that you may have to fight to survive. Mm-hmm. And then when you went further and started traveling further afield into other countries where you know existence is in danger in different ways, it's not so obvious as it is in Israel where like, you, can right. have a, you could have a bomb drop on you or you know, a war spring up in any moment, but you were in these other areas where it's just ingrained and the danger is persistent right. and pervasive. And yes. the dynamics between men and women are such that basically women just grow up knowing that they're just going to be in that situation of having to be on the receiving end all the time. Well, they did then. Yeah, I, you know, but not I mean, now. It's radically changing now. <laughs> and I just love it. I, it thrills me. The, the, all over the world, but especially in the developing world, can see the uprising of women. And, and here in the, in the U.S. and in the Western world, too, I mean, as I talked to you, there are uprisings in Belgium and, and France and just women taking their bodies back, taking mm-hmm. their power back. But you're right. And that's lovely how you encapsulated a long, wordy thing that I just said. <laughs> But great, um, great stories, but such an incredible journey, you know, to arrive at this place of, well, you know, there's one more, piece. I am powerful. <laughs> so, you know, so I want to know kind of where it went from that, because cool. that's a, that so was a big that, journey right there. So where next? Big, and that brought me to the martial arts. When I came back, I, I, you know, I, 
because I suffered a lot of indignities and hands-on indignities, and I was reduced by that and diminished by that. And so I was terrified, like men would walk by and my body would cringe. So I, I went to the martial arts, which is one of the reasons why a lot of women go to the martial arts, because they've had you know, bad things happened to them or they've been had unwanted touching or whatever. So it brought me to the martial arts. My primary art was Aikido at the time. And also the women's movement was starting to really burgeon and bloom. And I saw starting to really define and explore what does it mean women's self-defense. I mean, that's a piece can of the... You, can you just kind of back up and re-say that? Because there was like a 10-second gap. Yeah. So when I came back after that experience, and, you know, I had a lot of fear in my body, and I would cringe often when men walked by, just like solidify myself. I remember feeling like I turned into an ironing board, and I would just like stiffen up. And I needed to undo that, you know. So I took to the martial arts, as a lot of women do. A lot of women come to martial arts to unheal and to, you know, find power again and, and deal with all that aftermath of, you know, unwanted touching and sexual violence and that sort of thing. So I came to the martial arts. Mostly my art was Aikido, which is a Japanese art and involved a lot of throwing and slamming, not so much punching and that kind of thing. I did a little bit of that. But I also saw it was the beginning of, um, you know, feminism was blossoming and the women's movement. And so the beginnings of the women's self-defense also had its seeds. So I'm talking about now the later 70s, predating my involvement and the full force padded assailant training. There were the fierce few, I called them, and they're off, they, they tell their stories in a wonderful archive I have called Black Belt Women, which is these old, little, tiny, slim volumes of magazine where women were starting to explore these issues of their bodies and their boundaries and fighting. So that was, you know, part of why, how I healed from that, a lot of that kind of experience and uh, to get myself back and to get more grounded and to really assess what had happened and what do I want to do about this. So that was all happening. And then, uh, so fast forward from my returning from Asia, another 10 years, I'm living in sunshiny, beautiful, new age, Boulder, Colorado, and I'm getting my master's in counseling and psych and teaching, and I'm involved in dance therapy and, and all these very wonderful things. And I'm teaching at a Buddhist school in Boulder called Naropa University, and mm -hmm. So that's all happening. And then I encountered the big third pivotal seminal experience, the, f another, the final initiation, if you will. So it's the mid-80s. I'm home alone. My then-fiancé is working overnights at a mental health center, emergency psychiatric work. And we're living in this little, lovely Victorian apartment in downtown beautiful Bola, Colorado. And I am awoken, maybe at 3.30 or 4 in the morning, by the sound of creaking floorboards from the footsteps of a man I did not know, walking towards my bed. So this, this was the ultimate, it happened to me, nightmare terror. He had already been in the basement and had cut the power, electric power, and he had cut the phone lines. There were no digital phones. It, you know, it was all regular phones and stuff like that. And he, he'd cut the power, he'd cut the phone lines. I had left a window open. It was sizzling hot, you know, bad move on my part in the summer. And he had let himself in. So I see this silhouetted figure in a hallway walking towards me in a hallway that normally would have a light on walking towards my bed and I see he's got a blade in his hand I can see that much and I bolt I, I'm in bed and at first my mind protected me and I looked at the clock and I thought it was Jeff and I'm thinking in my head 
Jeff, are you home early? Jeff, is that you? But the words never make it out of my mouth because I know in that moment, this is not Jeff. So I sit up straight in bed and uh, he's coming towards me and I just unleash the most blood curdling scream. Like, Cynthia, you didn't hear me, huh? <laughs> you know, Faye Ray's King Kong scream had nothing on me. <laughs> So I screamed bloody murder. It wasn't really a power yell. It was a scream. And at the time, you know, I'd, been, I'd done some martial arts training, Aikido, a little bit of jiu-jitsu, but I had no idea what to do from a lying down position. I had no idea what to do from rape defense. I didn't know the down, dirty stuff like get up and grab the nearest thing and slam it into a person and, you know, all this kind of cool stuff that I teach now, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't know any of that. I mean, at the time, most martial arts was either punching and kicking or sort of the Aikido style, right? So I sit up, I scream, I yell, and he opts to flee. We later realized he'd been in the apartment before. It was a crazy thing on the doorknob and how you have to let yourself out, this little tiny ring, metal ring. And it was utterly terrifying. I was utterly traumatized. The smart me, the therapist me, I was training to be a therapist, the I understand about this me, nothing. I felt reduced to a piddly nothing. Mm. Nothing. I was ultimately traumatized. I was terribly traumatized. And it turned out that he was hunting me. That's more to the story, that he mm-hmm. had been hunting me, stalking me. There were follow-up phone calls, I'm going to get you, and so on. And so on. They, to this day, I have no idea who it was, although he fitted the MO of a serial rapist in the area, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the police, the psychics, nobody could help me. So by day, I was kind of fine. But as soon as night fell, man, I was just a wreck, Cynthia, a mm-hmm. wreck. And all the trauma. I, and we, Jeff felt terribly helpless, of course. We, you know, dragged his 22 rifle out of storage. And anyways, I ended up farming my, we farmed me out. I stayed at friends because he had to do a lot of overnights for his work. And like I said, there were follow-up phone calls. At some point, our little storage unit at the back of the garage, not a hearty storage unit, kind of chicken wire and whatnot, got broken into his gun. His rifle got stolen and, you know. It was absolutely traumatizing. And I did my best. I understood it intellectually. I knew what was going on. You know, I had all the academic and intellectual understanding of all that. Um, I am hearing this tinkling noise in the background again. I don't know what it is, but I just want to tell you that, Cynthia, there's a tinkling sound. That's weird. Yeah, it's a big tink. Do you want to take a pause? I think it might be wind chimes. Let's just take a pause real quick and I'll oh, let's see. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like wind chimes. That You're must right. be what it is. Phooey. Okay, one sec. I've heard, I heard it before, too. Okay, wind one chimes. sec. Let me go uh, move them. <laughs> one sec. Okay, doke. There we go. That should be better. Oh, good. That's really um, funny. It's been so long since I've recorded up here at my house, I didn't even think about it. But apparently it's going to be windy today. <laughs> the bad news is I heard it before on the interview that's as okay. well. That's it'll, okay. It'll but just that's be okay. in the background. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice little tinkling sound. Yeah. So, okay, so, let's pick back up. Okay. Let's get back up and I'll, I'll wrap up the story and get to where it took me in terms of self-defense. Mm-hmm. So I was completely traumatized. And I understood all these things. Here's the cool part. So on the heels of this terrifying experience, maybe a couple of weeks later, I hear on a radio show, auspiciously, a women's radio show, about this newfangled kind of women's self-defense that was coming to Boulder for the first time ever. And the hallmark of it was it involved these big, these guys in all kind of padded gear from head to toe. And it involved scenarios, rape scenarios, street scenarios, scenarios where they enacted people that you know, 
your ex, your neighbor, your this, your that, as well as, you know, the stranger attacks. And we know now that most attacks, assaults against women are not stranger attacks, but it did all of that, right? And there was these scenarios, and here was the great part. It was this new thing, and women would get to practice their simple skills in these recreated scenarios, full blast, no holds barred, and nobody got hurt. I mean, the guys also weren't going to get hurt. Not that that mattered a whole lot to me at the moment. But I listened to this, this, and I swear to you, without a second's hesitation, it was the first time in weeks I'd felt my heels hit the ground, touch the ground, back onto carpeted earth, because I was so messed up. And I, my whole body relaxed. And I thought, I'm doing this. This is for me. No questions. Sign me up. I did it. Okay. At the time, it was called the Model Monkey Program. And uh, it delivered what it said. And it was so powerful for me, the recreation of these scenarios. And it involved, at the time, custom scenarios. So in other words, they asked all of us, maybe 16 women, you know, what had happened to us before. Everything was in confidence. And I told them about my story, that my trauma was so fresh, et cetera, et cetera. And so my situation got kind of played out. Not entirely, not exactly, but that's the beauty of this kind of training. It can insinuate it enough to trigger the same kind of physiological and emotional responses. Mm -hmm. And so I went through this, and I also learned that I could cry and fight at the same time, which was very powerful for me. And I think for all women, Mm -hmm. we've come to realize that, that I could be terrified. I mean, I thought I was going to poop my pants, right? Seriously. The adrenaline, the emotion combined and I remember being in a sexual assault a pin lying on the ground scenario and so part of what they did was that they not only enacted the physicality of assault but the verbal attack which Mm -hmm. is extremely important because we need women need to know how to deal with that it's like an inoculation they you know to, to 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 hear that not let it under your skin because that alone words alone will terrify and paralyze women and, and be used to gain compliance and control. Mm-hmm. So it was very, very important that this was done in the class. And so I discovered that I could cry and be terrified and fight at the same time. Once again, terror or fear, and rage or anger or fury, working together would become my weapons, along with practical physical skills. So I did that. I came away from it. I was, again, you know, starting to be a therapist and, and, and having a physical background and dancer. And I'm like, I, I need to do this. This is for me. This, it expedited my healing enormously. I don't believe in magic bullets, and I don't want to say in any way, shape, or form that there's a magic bullet. But I will tell you that this style of training has proved to be extremely psychotherapeutic. Uh, a lot of therapists recommend it, and it really expedited my recovery. I'm absolutely convinced that had I not done this, that I would have been in years in recovery. Mm -hmm. And so that was it. That was the beginning of Love Story. I had the perfect background that they were looking for, you know, and and I then brought this kind of training in its very primitive form. I was one of a handful of people who then refined it, improved it, you know, made it better in every which way. But I got involved and then I brought this program, this kind of training to the East Coast. This was now 1985 or so. And I set up shop in Boston. It was the first of its kind of this training that would then become a powerful uh, movement, not only a self-defense training, but also kind of a movement that would really impact women's self-defense in a huge way, catering to women, 
catering to women's realities and the type of situations that women most likely attack in close range, people we know, familiar people, as well as strangers, and all the assertiveness and the verbal skills and the boundary setting and the body language and the awareness skills, that whole, a whole big set of skills would become kind of pumped into this program and really radicalize, in my opinion, the women's self-defense movement beyond what had already started in a powerful way, but was still focused a lot on um, kind of hard style martial arts and, you know, the beginning of uh, boundary setting and so forth. So this was really huge. And I'm very proud and I'm very um, honored that I got involved with this and, you know, could add to it tremendously and help it really get off the ground. And I was with that program for many years until I would, you know, go off and sort of further evolve my own approach, rooted a little bit more in the immersion into the female warrior spirit and some of my own, you know, experiences about some of the emotional pieces and, and also bring in some other elements from the combatives, you know, your backgrounds with Tony Blowers you know, close range kind of stuff that just didn't have room for in that program because you can't put everything into one system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I did that for years and then um, decided to sort of evolve, continue to evolve my own approach in my, you know, fear into fire and my fierce primal philosophy and, and, you know, create my own evolution of program. But the model mugging, which then later would become called the impact program mm -hmm. and lose a little bit of a kind of new age initial thing. And um, anyway, so that was really the beginning of what would be huge. And I mean, it, when I first started my school in the Boston, Cambridge area, it coincided at a time, it was the perfect storm when women were coming forward, telling their stories of abuse and sexual assault and incest, and because it had been taboo to tell these stories. And a lot of what we were about was breaking that silence. And um, so it was at a time when women were really coming forward, telling their stories, and also that area, you know, all the universities and school, Cambridge, Boston, and the brilliant Dr. Judith Herman, who is one of my mentors in this way in terms of trauma recovery. There was a lot of stuff going on in that area around this. And, and so, you know, when I first got this off the ground, and it's very labor intensive. I mean, the guys in the padded suits would spend a year as apprentices mm -hmm. in training because, you know, it had to really be right and good. And it was not cookie cutter, you know, I mean, it, it, it takes a lot of finessing and a lot of good movement patterns. And yeah, I think to do that's with something that a lot of people don't understand with, with the um, mm -hmm. assailant mm -hmm. training and the scenarios is that it all depends on the role player being able to, to present the most realistic mm -hmm. Right, you know, right, quote, right. Bad right. guy as possible. And it's it's not right. just saying words or moving a particular no. way. It's having no. the energy and the intent and having that come through. Yes. And uh, so, yeah, it, it's not surprising that it takes, you know, a year plus of apprenticeship to, to bring somebody new on board. Yeah. And I thank you for illuminating that. And that's true. A lot of people don't see that, but it goes into it to make it good. I mean, look, it subsequently became like, you know, I mean, every guy with a karate studio is suddenly hanging out a shingle, donning some, you know, red man or gear or whatever, or better gear, 
and saying, hey, I do this. And it's not the same. No. But, I mean, it's not the same. And, you know, it's so, you know, I can talk a little bit more about what goes into that. And, and, and I'm not sure if that belongs here. But, yeah, it was. And the women teaching, I mean, they had to undergo rape crisis counseling. I mean, it, it was a long time for them, too. So it was, you know, at the time it was really, you know, high level, high end, labor intensive kind of stuff. And women came out of the woodwork. I mean, just saying, I need this. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my focus in this is, is it was its practical element. By that, I mean, you know, nothing complicated, a lot of gross motor skills in fighting elbows and knees and and close up neck face had things to get out of very close range situation and also it had a large focus and does on ground defense and that was unheard of until then pretty much i mean women didn't this was predated brazilian jiu-jitsu and that sort of thing and you know reversals and and sexual attacks on the ground and being pinned and held and you know how do you get out of it what are some of the things you can do what are options what are practical, physical, simple, basic, basic skills to escape from those. And of course, we had a a large focus, and I still do to this day, of first lines of defense, assertive communication, clear communication, Mm -hmm. boundary setting, physically, emotionally, psychologically, and, and, and understanding that deeply on a personal level, you know, owning your body, owning yourself, and a whole range of dealing with acquaintances and people that we know and unwanted contact, unwanted touching. How do you deal, you know, with all that stuff? So it was, as far as I know, it was the first kind of training that really encompassed many elements of that and said here, and we're going to do that in a fairly short amount of time. And then from here, you can go on and learn other great stuff. Right. And like the really cool thing for me, like, I mean, you can't see me kind of jumping up and down in my chair and hopefully it's not making any noise. <laughs> I, actually, I, I can see you, Cynthia. <laughs> you probably, I have psychic vision. There you go. Yeah. But, I mean, it, what you're talking about is, you know, you, you went into Aikido, you know, into a martial art environment first and mm-hmm. then found this. And so again, it was mm-hmm. like this progression. And mm-hmm. what you're talking about now is the way that learning self-defense is so different from mm-hmm. learning a martial art. Totally. Because it mm-hmm. encompasses all that mental, emotional, mm-hmm. psychological mm-hmm. training and preparation so that maybe you cannot be in the situation where you have to fight. But also, right. what was kind of implicit in what you were talking about was you're not talking about, here, I'm going to teach you how to throw this beautiful elbow, mm-hmm. this lovely technique that looks perfect, mm-hmm. and you're going to get judged mm-hmm. on later when you do your kata. You're talking mm-hmm. about, this is a freaking dirty situation. Yeah. What are the tools that you have, and how do you use those things? Like, so right. maybe it's your elbow. What can you do with that? Right. Which is a totally different orientation. So to know that you mm-hmm. were doing this in the 80s, I mean, there's part of me that is sitting here going, how did I not know this? Because guess what? Mm-hmm. I was living in Boston in 85, uh, 86, 87, yeah, 88. Well, girl, I, you and I have to have another conversation. <laughs> yes. And I, I mean, had no idea. It was no all idea. over the media, all over the news, everything. Well, I was but busy being a, a high-tech girl, so I, I didn't ah. even know any of this was going on. But, uh, you know, I just... Yeah, no, we were doing corporate programs and the whole bit. Well, Digital Equipment Corporation never brought you in, damn it. 
Maybe, uh, maybe not to me. Stuff, <laughs> they have, that's what it was called, the jewel recovery. Yeah. Because we, I did a lot of work in the um, Cambridge at the time. It's you know kind of budding tech sector and mm-hmm. everything, and and you know it started creating like on-site short mini programs yeah. and personal safety and self-defense. But you know, back to the bigger picture, as you say, that's so well put. You know, the focus in self-defense is practicality. It's not about you know beauty or tech. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, we can teach a perfect way to bl- throw an elbow, and I can teach that, you know, from the hip, from the this, this way, that. But then there's the practical application of it. Right. And it's good to learn the best way, but then there's the practical application. You know, somebody, you're coming out of a restroom in a club or a restaurant, and there's your ex, or somebody who, you know, now you're, you know, in a very close quarter situation. And you've got an arm free, a hand free, and you've said no. You've done all the right things. You stepped on his foot. You tried to throw him backwards, but he regained his balance. You know, blah blah blah. And now, what do you got? That's my. That's really kind of what it comes down to for me. I ask this question all the time when I'm teaching. What do you got? Mm-hmm. Do you have an elbow? Do you have a knee? Do you have your words? Can you bite? Can you yell? Is there a fire extinguisher you can go? What do you got? So if what do you got is your elbow, here's a bunch of ways you can use it. And use it one, two, three, four times. Bam, 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 bam. Slam, push, shove, monster shove, run. These are the things that we talk about in terms of practical. And the voice is a powerful weapon. I do a lot of stuff with voice vocalization. Tell me about that because that's something that I often hear from women is you know, I'm afraid that, or I already know that, like, I lose my voice completely when I feel like I'm in danger. Oh, so right. You know, that's part of, you and I've talked about this a little bit before, whether it's domestic violence or any violence or sexual assault. One of the things that an assailant, and I'm using that term broadly, will do, because it works real good, it has historically, again, is to instill fear. Now, that may be in what they say, they'll say threatening things or horrible things. They'll use tactics of dominance, control, their greater size, their greater strength, intimidation. You know, at another time, I'd love to share some actual particular stories of women that went through a sort of a series of these kinds of things. And often it's after they've ticked a whole bunch of other boxes that's allowed them, from their point of view, to get to this point. You know, oh, mm-hmm. she let me touch her this way, or I was able to, you know, control certain movement, or things that I teach people to disallow. Okay, so now you're at that scenario, you're at that situation where, and it's often somebody you know. So the silencing issue, these tactics of intimidation, of threat, of dominance, of control, will have effectively silenced women. And by that, I mean it shut them up. That's one of the goals of men is shut the F up, Mm -hmm. right? And it's very effective as a tactic to control women. So the other thing is that when we are terrified, we hold our breath. When we hold our breath, we can't utter, we can't do utterances. We can't say stuff. We can't yell. (gasps) Every woman knows that nightmare, right, of being Mm -hmm. mummified in a capsule of terror and they can't yell. Mm -hmm. It's a nightmare. And it happens. So best way to undo that is to yell, is to say things, is to yell, because it breaks the freeze response. 
Yelling will help break the freeze response. It galvanizes the oxygen going in the bloodstream and, and all that good stuff. Yelling can call attention to what's happening. It empowers us as much research has indicated as much as it will add 33%, a third more power to any strikes or moves that we use. So it's imperative for women to be able to find their find their voice mm-hmm. and to be able to unlock that even when faced with terror or threat. And that's not easy. You know, it is one of the first things that goes. And and um, aggressors, assailants, abusers, they know this. And they know how to try to silence women. So, you know, part of um, self-defense and, 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 and my view of, you know, undoing some, is, is a, it's not just about learning, it's about unlearning. There are things we have to unlearn. And there are things we have to learn. And finding your voice is critical. And there, I mean, there are various techniques that you and I could discuss about that, but it's, it's really critical for women to be able to find their voice and use it in a self-defense context. Well, yeah, well, thank you for that. And we are going to dive into that further in the future. But for now, let's, let's dig a little bit into what you developed. I love that you talk about the women's warrior spirit mm. and... Mm-hmm. Can you share, like, mm-hmm. you know, you went through these other mm-hmm. phases and then you reached a point where you launched your thing. Can you talk about, right. you know, a little bit more about that? Yeah, I can. And and I will be brief here, hoping that we can talk some more about this. Yes. Thank you. So, I mean, and all this is great. I mean, basically what I've done in this long period of time that you've generously given me is talk about my personal stories and then my love affair and involvement with the padded assailant training and its movement. So what happened for me was I just wanted to do more and more of a little bit of my own thing because I had really been studying, reading, researching, studying for years my immersion into the female warrior spirit, which exists in all cultures. And one of the ways in which I help and teach women to become more powerful is specifically to reconnect to the warrior lineage in their culture, whatever part of the world, whatever their faith, whatever their thing, that women warriors have always existed. I mean, I have a library full of such literature. So what I wanted to do at some point was I felt a little constrained by the orthodoxy, then called, still called the model making program with all its great stuff. And I, you know, and I was really looking at some other Techniques drawn from combatives but oriented for women and, you know, assaults against women and the warrior spirit. And I really wanted to evolve more of my own paradigm of the female warrior spirit and begin to delineate that from the male, which is a very steely, dispassionate. They don't do emotions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they, you know, it's it's more to- the stranger text. So I really wanted to have to develop more of my own articulation and creation of that, and really focus more on my primal spirit as well as the warrior spirit. Back to my Neander babe story. Can um, I just say, like, my mind just exploded? Yes, you can say that. <laughs> you, you just said something, and I literally just went, wait, 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 what? what? Because what you just said was, you know, the male warrior spirit is sort of this detached, steely, very, very. unemotional yep. spirit. And, right. And because in the male mindset, in the male world, emotions 
make men lose control. <laughs> right, and they're considered to be weakness. And Absolutely. and what I love it's about what you they just lose control. Yeah, what you just said was the hell with that. That's not the way the for women. Mm-hmm. You know, that's char- not the and way that's for probably women. why for me a lot of the male dominated self defense programs, like I, I like a lot, but there's some things that just don't resonate and don't hit. And exactly. I think that's exactly, exactly it. Because what you're saying mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. these emotions are the source of our power. We just need to learn they're, how to harness they are them. A very big source of power. Yes. Because we are emotional creatures. And for we don't have the same upper body strength. Man, I don't got that. Mm-hmm. If I have to go up against a much larger, stronger person, a male, even if it's just to defend myself verbally, whatever, I don't have the brawn. I don't have the same muscle strength. I don't have men are superior in that sense for the most part. Greater size, greater strength, greater lung power, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, what is the paradigm that we need as women that import and and evolve a female warrior spirit that isn't based in brawn? Well, one of the places we go, and this goes to sort of the heart of my teaching now, is one of the things I do and want to do is to help women learn where do you go inside of yourself to pull up strength. Mm. How can you access these powerhouse emotions as part of your reserve of strength coupled with practical technique, you know, vocalization? So this is our paradigm. This is and driven by, if I may say, a deep heartfelt desire to help make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's part of the warrior spirit for those because there's so many misunderstandings about what that is. For men, for women, for anybody. But, you know, a true warrior isn't about violence. A true warrior is as much about, you know, compassion and generosity and all these other attributes. And so, you know, for women, the warrior spirit, I think, is really rooted and grounded in not only saving ourselves, that's for sure, but also how do we help make the world a better place? And we need, we're fighting back with our emotions, our hearts. Mm-hmm. As you know, as a vital, as you say, you know, reservoirs of power. So when I'm teaching a woman, everyday woman, everyday women, and maybe they have, you know, they haven't done martial arts or anything, the key things that I'm focusing on to get her to help her arrive at this place is a combination of discussion and exercises and practices around reaching into oneself to uncover the warrior spirit, to find the primal spirit, literally, exercises to do that, and coupled with physical techniques and a lot of discussion amongst women about all of this and, you know, tapping into the emotional reserves and powers that we have, fear, rage, you know, grief, all of these emotions, and to learn how to use these as part of our warriorism. Yes. And it's a very, very different paradigm. I'm not knocking the other paradigm. I'm saying this is a different paradigm. And guys don't get it, Cynthia. Most guys just plain don't get it. Yeah. Well, I mean, men and women are different, and what we experience in the world is different. And you know, I know a lot of male self-defense instructors who are busting their butts to really try to understand 
Absolutely the, right. The woman's paradigm so that they can also teach women more effectively. Uh, but, you know, what you're talking about is tapping into these reservoirs of emotion and strength, I think is yeah, a really and I key think, difference. And I personally, this is my personal opinion, I've had many a discussion and some controversial about this with my male colleague. My personal belief is that a woman, as a primary role model, it's a woman who is the best position to bring other women to this place within themselves. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying don't learn from guys. I mean, some of the best stuff I've learned from men, to be honest, in terms of techniques and so forth. Mm -hmm. But I do believe that the best means of transmission is woman to woman. Yes. Because part of it is going into some scary places, you know, experiences that are sort of universal to women. And I think a woman who's a seasoned instructor is in the best position to really bring women fully into this place within herself where she is armed with these resources mm -hmm. and powers. I'm not saying don't learn from guys, but I do. I know because a lot of guys say, oh, you know, I think a man can teach women just as well as women. My take on that is this. A lot of people can teach self-defense to women, but that's different than teaching women self-defense. And I just, and first of all, our industry, as you know, needs more women. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, we, you know, we need more women in the powerhouse, badass positions to take women to this place within themselves. And I just, I think women are best prepared to be able to do that, assuming that they have, they're made of the right stuff and they have the right kind of training and so on. Which, again, isn't to say don't learn from guys. It's just different. And for a lot of women, the learning is a transmission process. It's not, there are different ways of teaching, many different ways. And they're all, they all have strengths. There's what I call information delivery. In other words, Let's say a fellow or a woman is, you know, they're giving you information and there's techniques and there's whiteboards and there's intellectual learning and understanding about adrenaline and blah, blah, blah. And all that's great stuff. It really is great stuff. For me, another means of teaching is through transmission, is through role modeling, is through, you know, knowing what it's like to live in a woman's body. And being able to address some of these things as women learn and they face challenges. And there are some issues that are hard to talk about. Mm -hmm. Sexual assault, you know, just all that stuff. So well, I that's, really... That's where having that foundation of trust mm. first is essential. And I mean, that's one reason why I really wanted you to share your story. Because it's in hearing you know, the personal story of the instructor and the experiences that she's had, you know, that's, yeah, that's where yeah, you're going, yeah, yeah, she gets it. She knows exactly yeah, what I've been experiencing. Yes, like, it's yes. not theory. Right, this it's is, a commonality. It's an yes, experience. Yes, and that's, mm -hmm. that's, with, exactly. that's where the trust comes from, and that's where, you know, the learning is really a very collaborative process. It's not a, you know, I'm the expert, you're the student, you're going to learn from right. me. It's a very collaborative right. thing, and I I'm but sure. isn't that also a woman's take? Yes. <laughs> because in, traditional, in the traditional hierarchy embedded in martial arts and defense training, it, it's a top-down kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It is, I'm the expert, right. and I'm going to give you this information. But what you're saying is so right. It is collaborative. It is all of that. 
me and you together, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yes, I have other experiences. Yes, I have authority. Yes, you have authority. You want your instructor to have authority. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> you want to trust not only that they've had the same experience, but they are skillful in their disciplines, that they have authority, that they have invested time, they have wisdom, insight, all that stuff. At the same time, you want that sense of camaraderie. Mm-hmm. And shared experience, if you yeah, will. Yeah. Well, Melissa, we have been talking for an hour and a half. And I know. I barely even scratched the surface. <laughs> so here's what I'm thinking. I have one more question for you, and okay. we'll wrap this up. But shall we let mm-hmm. people in on our little secret now? Oh, yes. I love secrets. <laughs> I love breaking the secret. Yes. So our little secret is that this is only the first time you get to hear a conversation with Melissa and Cynthia. We are going to do a series. Yay. So we're going to have a special series of the Born to Be a Badass podcast that is just interviews and conversations with Melissa Salt and me. Oh, yay. And teachings. And we'll break stuff down into particular, you know, smaller doses. Yes. And we'll uh, hit teachings a, and specifics. Yes. We'll hit probably one topic per show so we can really mm-hmm. dig into it and yay. finish each episode with some actionable tips yes. for you to I go out that. and work with. And I have one for today, but yes, actionable, practice this, do this, visualize this. Yes. Here's what you can, here's the nugget of wisdom to take away. Yes. So stay tuned because this is only your first exposure to Melissa on the podcast and there's a whole bunch more coming. I'm so excited. Melissa, I can't tell you how grateful I am that you are up for doing this collaboration because it is going to be not just fun, but freaking powerful. Yes, and gosh darn it, women need to learn this stuff, and we need to make the world a better place. And Cynthia, I just want to say thank you. You offered me this, and I jumped at it. And, you know, today, again, was kind of a lot of background stuff, and we are going to get more concrete and more specific in terms of methods and various things you can do. And Cynthia, I love this badassery motif. And I just want to thank you. So I know you have one more question for me, but before we get to that, I just, there is nobody I want to say on the record that I would do this with, but you, because you and I are on the same wavelength. And I just, I mean, I want to, I want to thank you for this so much. And listeners, you're in for a treat. <laughs> well, I truly touched Melissa. Thank you so much. And I'm so honored to be able to do this with you. i you know, I, I often talk about, like, I told my kids, pick the thing to do in your life that makes you just leap out of bed, excited to go do it. And Aww. Aww. You know, teaching, teaching women in self-defense, that has been my thing. But I have to tell mm. you, the opportunity to do this with you has just lit me up in a whole different way. So I am just like all a tingle and so excited. So. Well, I'm all about the tingle and excitement. <laughs> I mean, this is another kind of arousal, if if you will, and I mean that the best possible way. Power is arousing. Absolutely. Well, that's a great segue to my last question, and then I want you to share your tips. So my last question for today is, how do you think that women can develop their own personal power and courage? Boy, that is a big question. 
And there are many answers to that, but I'll, I'll, I'll hone in. I think the ways that women can develop power and courage, A, I mean, I'm sorry to sound simplistic, but I think in addition to whatever else a woman's practices are, in terms of embodied practices, whether they're sports or martial arts or yoga, which I think are fantastic ways to access power, I really think women need to also find power through good, practical, female-centric self-defense training. I mean that. And I'm not just saying that, you know, I'm not trying to promote myself here. I'm saying that's really important. And in terms of courage, which is another topic, the word courage comes from the Latin for core, C-O-R, which means heart. And the French, your name, mm -hmm. core. This is where the word courage comes from. And that means with heart, to put it simply. So, and I think this is something women are naturally endowed with. I think most women have ample heart. And I think, therefore, a lot, so many women have courage. But, you know, finding courage, there's a lot of ways to find courage uh, along with power. But, I mean, women draw courage from each other. And I think one of the greatest ways for women to find courage is to listen to other women's stories all over the world. For me right now, personally, I find a lot of courage in women's uprisings in the developing world and all over the world. And I think, you know, everyday women can find courage in listening to select, select women's centric news about not just the bad, not the bad stuff, but what is the positive things that women are doing? What are the ways that women are rising up? It's just, it, courage is contagious. Mm. Oh, yeah. It really, it, right. it is. It, it is. I mean, even in the simplistic sense of, you know, the one who breaks through that other people follow. So hearing stories from other women, I think, is a profound and easy, accessible way for women to find courage. Listen to other stories of strength. Oh, that's awesome. And I think right on, right on for both of those. Well, let's see. How about you share your tips for today? Well... Aside from tuning in, that's my first tip, tune in to future shows with us. But seriously, one of my tips, I mean, I'm ta I've talked today mostly about a lot of things, in, a, in a, not so much in a concrete way, but in a kind of philosophical and spiritual and, you know, emotional, female-centric kind of way. And so one of my tips to listeners is to try to reconnect with the lineage of warriors within your own sphere. In other words, whatever your faith, whatever your culture, whatever your background, read about Google, women warriors connected to your lineage. Because I, I truly believe that we draw courage from lineage, whatever our lineage is. And so my tip to women is to look at what lineage they hail from and read some stories and ask your, and put yourself on that spectrum. See yourself on that spectrum, that lineage. And, for example, you can read about stories of particular women who have overcome obstacles or have literally fought off invaders and that sort of thing. And look into the mirror and see those images on your face. Look this way and that until you find and see the look and the feel of, of a warrior in your DNA, in your background, and this, and connect to that, and see if you can feel that. Try to 
we can't just talk ourselves into it. It's like you have to be able to feel it. So connect to your warrior lineage of where you come from. And it might not come right away. You know, I want you to feel that in your own body. I mean, literally in your hide and heart and go, wow, I can connect to that. I can feel that. I sense that. I get that strength and start to internalize that power. Really, on that most basic level, whether it's pre the prehistoric woman or the lineage of your background, just connect to that, own that, feel that, embody that. That's the first step. I love that. And one reason why, I, I think we're going to have to dig into this in one of our future episodes. Like, really, what is a woman warrior where where are some great examples but one of the Mm. things that just popped right into my head is I have four children two girls two boys I gave both of my daughters middle names of Greek goddesses so Charlotte Ah. Charlotte is Charlotte Athena ah there you go and Katie is Catherine Demetra and I had no Mm -hmm. idea at the time why I was doing that, but it's turned out Mm -hmm. to be a really important Mm -hmm. thing for both of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And Charlotte, in fact, is just starting, she's just started her own company, which is Athena Communications. (laughs) Oh, I love that. Greek, yes. uh, You know, I, I I didn't really know why, but I was really, I had no choice. Like those names were their names and that was it. Like it wasn't like I was out looking Mm -hmm. for something. So I gave them a lineage to tap into without Mm -hmm. even realizing Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. But there are so many other Mm -hmm. areas and spheres of you know, real women who have walked to the earth, whose stories we can tap into. Uh, Absolutely. You know, mythological women, women from, you know, history all around the world who were, you know, leaders in their countries. And, Absolutely. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so many different things. Yeah. That, the yeah, female well, I, warrior lineage is vast and wide. Yeah. And, you know, you can start with your own background or you can look to others. But really try to connect to that and, and begin to embody, the, uh, own that, mm-hmm. you know, as I say, own that and put yourself on that spectrum. And I mean, it's imperative for women to draw strength from those who came before us. Yes. Oh, that's awesome. Melissa, I just love that. So I'm going to be thinking about that between now and our next show. And I hope everybody else is too. Uh, before we say goodbye, let's share with people how they can find you. <laughs> look under a rock <laughs> <laughs> be careful when you pick it up yeah uh-huh. so you can go to my website admittedly it needs updating but it's there and it gives a lot of information and there's some very practical and I have a whole page about the warrior lineage and mindset and, you know, what it means to be able to, um, uh, four or five pillars of this. So you can access it two ways. My former, because I've retired it, my trade name is Dr. Ruthless, dr-ruthless.com, which is my website, but it can also be accessed by www.fierceandfemale.com spelled out fierceandfemale.com so my website is a way that you can learn more about me and reach me I'm also on Facebook and that's under my Melissa Salt Fierce and Female Training Consultancy page which you can access on Facebook as well Great, well we will have links 
to all of those things in the show notes so that people can find you easily. And I'm just going to put in a plug here and say that there are some amazing resources on your website and um, get over there and dig in because there's links to all kinds of awesome stuff that will just give you incredible things to chew on and ponder and think about and also things to implement. So do it. Terrific. And, and, and if I can just add one quick thing, as you know, Cynthia, I'm having some medical issues and I only say that because it means I'm, I'm uh, shifting my focal points for work and I, it's long overdue for me to write my book, my manifesto. Yes. And that's something I want to do. And uh, also, I'm, I am doing consulting in the corporate marketplace. But so, yeah, book a book is in my future and just something for people to know. And uh, you can reach me online at any of the places that Cynthia just mentioned. And thank you, Cynthia. I can't thank you enough. I am thrilled to be connected to you, to meet you, to be on this show. And I'm so psyched for future shows. And folks, I won't be as wordy and they'll be more short and to the point and with specific topics and focal points and some, you know, specific actionable pieces and how to kind of stuff, physical, emotional, psychological and so forth. Yes. Well, I am so grateful that uh, you came on the show today and that we have this whole future laid out in front of us because you have so much to bring and so much to give. And I just can't wait to facilitate getting the word out to a really wide population who need to hear this and who will just come away so much more in touch with themselves, their own power, and I think having so much more hope and courage Mm. for the future. So super excited to do that. So thank you so much for being on today. And I'm not going to say goodbye. I'm just going to say for now, this has been later. (laughs) Yeah. This has been the born to be a badass podcast. Stay safe (laughs) and be a badass. You've been listening to the born to be a badass podcast, the groundbreaking show that shines the light on women, violence and safety, life after trauma and how to build personal power and courage. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and share it with your friends, family members, and colleagues. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review that will help our show reach more women around the world. Tune in regularly for more exciting conversations full of insights and wisdom you won't hear anywhere else. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.